Okay, uh, the session that we're looking at is lesson five, and it's entitled Work Through Conflict. You know, there are a lot of people who have been saved for a long time. They're Christians and they don't yet know how to handle conflict. And so whenever they get in a situation where there's a conflict, they behave like their old selves. They go back to being the unregenerate person that they are in terms of how they deal with the conflict. And that, that ruptures, that, that hinders their testimony. It's often easy to misread someone's intentions or motives. We see things from our own perspective and experience. When we fail to see the other person's side, we are prone to criticize and judge. When both sides talk, misconceptions can be avoided or corrected. In today's scripture passage, the Israelite leaders misjudge a situation. Fortunately, they didn't immediately act on their assumptions. They sought answers and found a solution. And hopefully at the end of this study, we will see how they did that and how we can do the same thing when we encounter a similar situation. Uh, is, you know, we can misjudge the situation, but to act on that misjudgment could be detrimental. The, question, the first question on the sheet is what? Okay, so what are some crazy ways you've seen people deal with conflict? Fights. Fights, okay. And as, as Sister Brenda just mentioned, crime, violence. Before someone sit down and try to resolve a, con a conflict, they would pick up a weapon and get violent and take somebody out and not out to a movie or a dinner or anything like that. Okay, take them out in the worst possible scenario. Okay, let's look at the Bible meets life on page 50. We can have someone read that please. The nations of Chile and Argentina were close in war at the beginning of the 20th century. Fortunately, leaders from both countries came up with a peaceful resolution. In honor of that agreement, both nations erected a statue in 1904 called Christ the Redeemer of the Andes. The 23 foot tall statue was carried in pieces by mules up the Andes, Andes Mountain, where it still sits 12,500 feet above sea level. The statue also includes a plaque with the following inscription in Spanish Sooner shall these mountains crumble to dust, then Chile and Argentina shall break this peace. Which at the feet of Christ, the Redeemer, they have sworn to maintain. Conflict happens, but it's not always conflict itself that trips up a marriage, an organization, or a ministry. What ultimately causes the most damage is people mishandling the conflict. While we can't avoid conflict, we can avoid mishandling it. The book of Joshua helps us see how to do that through another story of two conflicting groups facing each other across their own border. Okay, and notice the point of the lesson at the top of the page on page 50. Leaders handle conflict with clear communication. 
And most of the time when conflict will get out of hand, it's because the communication is foggy, it's not clear. And both parties, because of that, both parties misunderstand each other. And then you have a blow up. Okay, so let's look at uh, the passages on uh, the paragraphs on page 52, because these passages sets the stage uh, for the scripture that we're going to look at. Uh, let's have someone read those uh, passages. That's on page 52. It was supposed to be a time of rest. The Israelite tribes of Reuben and Gad, along with half the tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh. Manasseh had previously requested to settle in the land east of the Jordan River rather than wait for new lands in Canaan. God had allowed this, provided they supported their brothers on the west side of the river when it was time for battle. Joshua gave these two and a half tribes his blessing to return to their homes. Before they crossed the Jordan, however, they stopped to build an altar and almost immediately captured the attention of everyone around. The tribes who lived west of the Jordan were ready to go to war against their own people. Why? They assumed the altar was a sign of rebellion against God through the worship of false idols. Before starting the war, however, the Israelites sent a delegation to deliver a message to the offending tribes. These leaders expressed their concern by revisiting the history of their people. In particular, they reminded them of the sin of Peor. Long before the people took part in the sexual, explicit idolatry of the surrounding cultures, God's punishment was sorry. God's punishment was so severe that twenty-four thousand people died in a plague. Okay, now notice here. The punishment of God was so severe. How many people died? 24,000. Not 24. Not 2,400. You know what 24,000 people look like? It's a big number of people. Okay, read the final passages, uh, paragraphs. The delegation was so concerned about the spiritual status of their brothers and sisters that they invited the two and a half tribes to move across the river and join them. If their own land was filled with ungodly influences. They were concerned about the community as a whole, as well as the consequences of God's judgment on both the guilty and the innocent. They wanted a godly resolution. In the same way, we should be eager in conflict, not with the aim of winning the argument, but of genuine love and a desire to serve the other party. Okay, so one of the things that we want to look for as Christians when we get in a conflict is we want a godly resolution. We don't become chameleons when we get in a conflict. We become chameleons and change our colors and our behavior and our whole attitude. And the person standing by who, who knew that we were Christian, oh, I thought he was a Christian. Simply because of the way you respond to a conflict. Okay, let's look at then the passage at what the Bible has to say. Uh, but before that, consider the setting. 
uh, of the passage, as uh, before we read it, two and a half of Israel's tribes had asked Moses to receive their portion of the territory on the east side of Jordan. Moses granted their request with the stipulation that the fighting men from these tribes would help their brothers conquer Canaan. With the promised land largely under the control of the Israelites, these fighting men were released to report, return to their families and lands east of the Jordan. When everything seemed to be going well, a misunderstanding between these two groups of Israelites nearly resulted in a civil war. We know what civil wars can do, right? Okay, let's look at the passages then. Someone read for verses... Um, on page 51, uh, verses 11 to 18, please. Then the Israelites heard and said, Look, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan at the region of the Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to go to war against them. Go ahead to, to 18. They went to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead and told them, This is what the Lord's entire community says. What is this treachery you have committed today against the God of Israel by turning away from the Lord and building an altar for yourselves so that you are in rebellion against the Lord today? Was it the sin of Peor which brought, brought a plague on the Lord's community and not for us? so that we have not cleansed ourselves from it even to this day. And now you would turn away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the entire community of Israel. Okay. Thank you. Uh, when we look at verse 7, we see the reference to the sin of Peor. And it was a reminder of the negative circumstances of apostasy. Near Peor, a mountain in Moab, a group from among the twelve tribes camped in the plains of Moab had committed apostasy by having sexual relations with pagan women and worshipping their gods. This is what the sin of Peor was really all about. Particularly uh, the Baal of Peor. And so the Lord's judgment against this apostasy came in the form of a plague that claimed the lives of 24,000 offenders, all those who broke the law. And the statement we see in the passage, we have not cleansed ourselves from it even to this day, uh, actually reveals how deeply and devastating the plague of Peor had been said or impressioned into the minds of the Israelites. And so that's what he's talking about there. And then with verse 18, in verse 18, we know that uh, the delegation asks the Transjordan tribes if, in spite of the disaster at Peor, notice the phrase, now you would turn away from the Lord. The question is followed by a, a warning. If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the entire community of Israel. So again, they're reminding them, says, listen, you need to turn away from the sins because we still have remnants of the sins of Peor in the camp. And if you don't turn away from the Lord, judgment, the same judgment that God brought upon the nation before, he's going to bring it again. 
Nine and a half of the tribes who actually dwelt in the promised land viewed themselves as the true people of God. Only nine and a half saw themselves as the true people of God. The entire community of Israel. They did not want to experience another PR-like plague on account of the perceived apostasy of the two and a half Transjordan tribes. They were afraid and so they took action to confront what they considered to be rebellion against God. Don't just sit by and say, okay, they, they, they mess up. They're gonna, they're gonna, God's going to deal with them. No, they looked at the entire camp and they said, they mess up, all of us are going to suffer the consequences. And so they thought about coming to some kind of a resolution. Here was a conflict and they were dealing with it. They wanted to deal with it in a way that God would be honored. Okay, look at the next question on page 52. How do you typically respond when people accuse you of wrongdoing? How do you typically respond, or how do you normally respond when someone accuses you of wrongdoing? You approach them? How? Hostile. Hostile, right? Okay, someone else? Someone else said something over here. Okay. 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 If the wrongdoing is true, then you reproach it in a civil way. Okay. I was saying, if somebody accused you, the person would say, "Not me." Okay, not that. That's the way you would do it. But if someone is angry with you. It's better not to say anything because they're not going to hear you. You have to wait till another time to approach that situation because they are not good and they are mad. And you can take that from Jesus' action. Look at their truth. He could have just get even. And he said, he told us, rent not yourself. I will be invented. And then, and this is just. Probably, I'm on the same thing. It's not what people do to you, it's your action to it. Mm -hmm. And if you leave it alone, God will work. Then it says that it's because of Jesus' confidence in his father's love and justice that he was able to keep his mouth closed because he knows his father's going to win. So that should be our reaction, and that's not our reaction. No, it isn't. Uh, in most cases, it's not. Uh, it, typically, it is not the response. Someone accuses us, we, we sometimes immediately fly off the handle, like they say. All right? Uh, because we respond from an emotional perspective. Okay? And that doesn't, you know, the, the last thing we think about when we respond in is, how is God going to get honor from this? Okay? How is my testimony going to stand this test? You know, we don't think about our testimonies when we, when we are wrongly accused. All we're thinking about is they picking on me. Why me? Yeah, right. Okay. That's what the response is. That's what the typical response is, yes. Okay, so we've seen the confrontation initiated by the nine and a half tribes. Now let's look at verses 26 to 27 and see how the two and a half tribes are, are, are responded. Someone read verse 26 and 27, please. Therefore we said, let us take action and build the Lord for ourselves, but not for burnt offering or 
sacrifice. Instead, it is to be a witness between us and you and between the generations after us, so that we may carry out the worship of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to our descendants, you have no share in the Lord. Okay. In verse 27, well, we note the large, impressive altar that was built. This wasn't just a little normal size altar. It was a large, impressive altar, so much so that it got people's attention. What in the world are they building that humongous thing for? Is the kind of responses that they would probably gotten from the size of this altar. Uh, by the Jordan River it was merely a replica. It was a replica of the Lord's altar in Shiloh, and so they they took uh, that image in Shiloh and they built an altar similar to that. It would serve as a witness. Notice the, the phrase or the expression: a witness between us. That is the Transjordan tribes and you. A witness between two tribes. The Cisjordan tribes and the Transjordan tribes, the two different tribes. The replica altar also had to be a witness between future generations. And those who were to come after would look back on this experience and know what it all meant. Future generations of the tribes of both sides of the Jordan. And so the term witness provided a legal status for the replica altar from the Transjordan perspective. So they're looking from, from a legal perspective here. Such a legal witness testified to the truth of the matter. It's the same way it would stand up in court. And so their desired goal in, the in establishing such a tangible witness on the banks of the Jordan River was to ensure the Transjordan tribes would have access, in the words of the passage, to carry out the worship of the Lord. Far from being apostate, the Transjordan tribes were acting out of deep faithfulness to the Lord for themselves and for the generations to come after them. See, we can't do anything about our ancestors, but we can certainly do a whole lot about our descendants. Okay? You can't do nothing about people who brought you here and have anything to do with your upbringing. But you can do something about those who come after you by the decisions that you make today. And that's what the the Transjordan tribes were doing. They wanted to make sure that their ancestors, that, that, that their descendants would be on the right track as they were focusing to be on the right track. They wanted to guarantee their right to worship the Lord in His presence with burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. To worship in His presence meant going to Shiloh, to the Lord's altar, before the tent of meeting. And so the large, impressive altar by the Jordan River would be a witness in the future as well, not just for the present time of resolving this conflict, but also for the generations. The descendants of the Cisjordan tribes would not be able to say to the descendants of the Transjordan tribes, you have no share in the Lord or with the Lord. They couldn't say that. They would not be able to say that because of what they're doing here in setting up this altar. And so by building the replica altar, the Transjordan tribes sought to encourage their descendants to worship Yahweh, they also sought to safeguard their right to worship at the Lord's altar in the Cisjordan against any possible severing of relationships initiated by the nine and a half Cisjordan tribes in the future. Okay, so they were coming together and they were trying to find 
conflict resolution. That's the bottom line. Okay, let's have someone read the passage on page 53. Paragraph on page 53. Yeah, go on. Clearly, they have been misunderstood. The reason they built the altar was to serve as a monument to their loyalty both to God and His people. The altar was a large replica of the altar in front of the tabernacle. People on both sides of the Jordan could see it. The two and a half tribes were afraid they would be forgotten, or that future generations wouldn't remember their faithfulness to the one true God. They intended the altar to stand as a witness between all the Israelites regarding the faithfulness of the two and a half tribes and their unwillingness to rebel against the Lord. In other words, both sides wanted the same thing. Both groups wanted to be unified in their loyalty to God, but they only realized their commonality when they listened to one another. To lead others well in times of conflict, we must listen. And we must listen with our hearts and minds, not just hear words. In order to understand what's tangled underneath each disagreement and identify whatever changes are needed, when we genuinely listen to others and show that we care about them and their cares, hurts, and desires, we demonstrate love. Still, that doesn't mean we're supposed to suppress our own feelings. The Apostle Paul said it best. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Taking time to listen helps avoid hasty conclusions. It gives us perspective from the other side. Leading through listening leads to a godly resolution, and in doing so, we only pray. Okay, thank you. All right, the question, the next question then is, what needs to happen in light of what we read, passages we looked at, what needs to happen for us to really listen during a conflict? Okay, like the folks say, shut up and listen, right? <laughs> Suppression usually results in a buildup of resentment. If any of we suppress something, that's not going to stay suppressed for long. It may stay suppressed for that particular moment, but somebody else is going to come along and they're going to cause an explosion and they're going to be the ones to get it. When actually they may not have had anything to do with what caused the, the problems to be suppressed in the first place. And we see that happening all the time. When we hear about these crimes of violence and we don't know what's behind it. You know, uh, and a lot of times it could be stuff that was held in, suppressed, and then somebody else come and light the fuse, and it just goes off, and the innocent suffer for the guilty. Okay, there's an exercise on page 55 uh, that uh, we're not going to do that here because that's, that's going to take some time. We don't have much time left here, so I'm going to I'm going to challenge you to take on that that exercise on your own. Uh, there's an acrostic there. 
and you need to add a word for each of those acrostics. See that? Okay, we're gonna leave you to leave you to that. Okay, it gives you gives you one uh, one one word already with love, and then you can add add the other words to it. Okay, but for the sake of time, we won't be able to get into that. Okay, the next uh uh we're gonna now jump to verses 33 to 34 and see a surprising successful resolution to this conflict. Surprising but successful. Verses 33 and 34. Someone read those, please. The Israelites were pleased with the report, and they praised God. They spoke no more about going to war against them to ravage the land where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. So the Reubenites and Gadites named the altar. It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Okay. Now there's another passage on uh, the paragraph on page 54. Let's go to that. When the Israelite leaders heard why the two and a half tribes had built the altar, they embraced it with good news. They were not resentful. They had been wrong in their assumptions, yet their decision to stand for truth, coupled with their willingness to listen to the other side, ultimately resulted in a declaration of discord? Unity. Unity. Okay, Phineas the priest declared, Today we know that the Lord is among us. See, and that's normally the outcome when, when you have a good resolution that's been done in a way that brings God honor. God had something to do with this, would be the outcome, would be the response. Okay, when, Israel, when the Israelite delegation returned home and shared the news with the rest of God's people, everyone rejoiced. Worship replaced war in the hearts of the people. The two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River also understood the significance of the occasion. They named their altar, it is a witness between us and the Lord is God. This witness served two purposes. One, the altar was a witness between us and you, according to verse 27. And two, the altar was a witness to the sovereignty and worthiness of God, according to verse 34. And notice, sovereignty and worthiness of God. Sovereignty means God's in charge. God's in charge. He's in control. In other words, the altar became a symbol of unity between two groups that were almost at one another's throats. Even more, the altar became a symbol of the sovereignty and greatness of God. So, as you work through disagreements and misunderstandings in your own life, remember that godly leaders handle conflict with clear communication. That's a practical and important lesson for all of us. But also keep in mind that God desires for all people to experience His plan and power working on their behalf. Even those who disagree, or even those, even those we disagree with, Therefore, it's necessary to trust God and step out in faith so that His power will bring about good for those He loves while bringing Him glory at the same time. Among those you influence and lead, make it your aim to not simply walk through conflict, but to do so in such a way that all people witness your great God at work in and through you. 
Okay, that's what you want people to see. God working in and through you. Now here are some key highlights that we need to point out in that passage we just read. When the Israelite leaders heard about heard why the two and a half tribes built the altar, they embraced it with good news. Okay, they were not resentful, they were not skeptical. Okay, that's the first key point. The second key point is the altar became a symbol of unity between two groups that almost were at one another's throats. They were on the brink of civil war. Even more, the altar became a symbol of sovereignty of greatness of God. And then the third point is, as you work through disagreements and misunderstandings in your own life, remember that godly leaders handle conflict with clear communication. Okay, if you're a leader, if you're a Christian, you are a leader. And it makes you a godly leader. And so you need to handle conflict with clear communication. Regardless of the fact that the, the opposite party may not be a believer, you still need to make an example. Question number four. What does it say? What is question? Have you ever seen that happen? Anybody? Seen a person handle conflict well? Okay. Well, whenever we have seen that, we, we know the response and the reaction it would have had on us. A positive reaction, especially in the, in the midst of so much negativity in how people handle conflicts. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air, as it were, when we see people handle conflict or resolve conflict in a, in a right way that doesn't lead uh, to negative results. And then question number five, what steps can we take to ensure conflict is resolved both now and for the future? And if we take our cue, cues from the, the lesson, we will see how we can approach that. We approach it in a way that this conflict that I'm engaged in, the result of this needs to be done in a way that's going to bring glory to my God and not cause God to bow his head in shame because of how I respond to it. Okay, that ought to be how we respond to ensure we resolve conflicts in the future. How is God going to get out of this? How is God going to look because of my response in dealing with this conflict? Normally, that's the last thing we think of. Okay. Okay, and so what's the word? What's the acronym? All my pain toward God. All my pain toward God. Okay. And align 
Okay, very good. That's a good, good, positive guideline to go by. And uh, we can be sure that we will not uh, cause a negative result of any conflict if you go in when you look at, uh, go in a bit according to that guideline. Okay, the final paragraph on page 54. Among those you influence and lead, make it your aim to simply walk through conflict. Make it your aim not to simply walk through conflict, but to do so in such a way that all people witness your God at work in and through you. And that acronym that Renel just mentioned is a good way uh, of that becoming a reality. Okay, let's look at live it out as we wrap it up here. Encourage, here's an encouragement to consider the following options for demonstrating clear communication in the midst of conflict. First one is listen. Normally when there's a conflict, people will refuse to listen and that creates, that just compounds the issue. Listen, when you find yourself in a disagreement this week, make a conscious effort to listen more than you talk. You know, often people want to do all the talking, they don't want to listen. Okay, and then affirm. Reach out to affirm and encourage someone with whom you had a conflict. You've had conflict in the past. Offer a note, a letter, a phone call, or even a small token of appreciation. Acknowledge God's work in both your lives. And then the final point is confront. If there's unresolved conflict in your relationships, reach out this week to confront the problem directly lovingly and patiently. Remember those three words. Directly, lovingly, and patiently. Don't settle for bitterness and hostility, which is the norm for many people, especially those who are not saved, but is not the norm for those who know Christ. Okay, and that brings us to the end of that lesson. But notice, you'll probably never build a statue or inscribe a plaque to commemorate the end of a conflict. Probably won't do that. But, you can always handle conflict with clear communication and always bring glory to God. You can't do that. Amen? Amen.